bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the Tuesday, October 26, 2021 podcast. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about an exciting proposal that could help build and rehabilitate more than half a million homes in the next decade. I'm talking about the Neighborhood Homes Tax Credit, or NHTC. The Neighborhood Homes Tax Credit is designed to incentivize new construction and rehabilitation of owner-occupied homes in distressed neighborhoods and rural areas. If enacted as proposed, the NHTC would make about $2 billion in annual tax credit authority available nationwide. The NHTC should sound familiar to our regular Tax Credit Tuesday listeners. I discussed an overview of the incentive on the podcast back in July with my partner, Dirk Wallace. We also spoke then about the Neighborhood Homes Tax Credit Working Group that Dirk and my other partner, John Shreddy Lee, if you're interested in learning more about that, please send an email to cpaids at novago.com. Today, we're going to take a deeper dive into how allocating agencies might administer the Neighborhood Homes Tax Credit through Qualified Allocation Plans, or QAPs. Joining me in today's podcast is Novogratic Housing Policy Consultant, QAP expert, and returning Tax Credit Tuesday guest, Mark Shelber. Mark has worked with local state tax credit QAPs for many, many states in a variety of different roles. He administered the local state tax credit as director of the Office of Housing Finance and Development at the Georgia Department of Community Affairs. He previously served as counsel and policy coordinator at the North Carolina Housing Finance Agency. These days, as housing policy consultant for Novogradic, Mark helps allocating agencies formulate and implement their QAPs. All told, Mark has revised and or implemented 38 QAPs in 16 states and counting. So it's safe to say he has valuable perspective as to how allocating agencies adopt and administer their QAPs. Mark joins me today to discuss what allocating agencies need to consider as they plan their neighborhood homes tax credit QAPs. Now today, I want to cover four major areas. First, briefly summarize the proposed neighborhood homes tax credit. Second, compare and contrast the neighborhood homes tax credit with the low-income housing tax credit. Third, talk about how allocated agencies might approach administering the neighborhood homes tax credit. And fourth, discuss what developers and investors can do to prepare for this potential incentive. We have a lot of new ground to cover, so if you're ready, let's get started. Mark, welcome back to Tax Credit Tuesday. Yes, glad to be here. Thanks for having me back. As I mentioned in the intro, an episode of Tax Credit Tuesday in July provided a broad explanation of the Neighborhood Homes Tax Credit. We went into a, a bit of detail, so we don't need to cover the basics in as much detail here today. Listeners who would like more detail can go back and listen to that July episode with my partner, Drip Walls. But I do think some level setting is needed. So if you could provide a high-level overview of the neighborhood homes tax credit for listeners who may be unfamiliar with the proposed incentive. Certainly. The highest level aspect to note is it is for ownership. It's for real estate, which is owned by the occupant. And that is the number one distinction between it and the low-income housing tax credit. And it's meant to cover the gap between the cost of building or renovating the houses and the price at which they could be sold. And it also helps existing owners rehabilitate their homes. And it's very targeted in where 
it can operate. It's communities with high poverty rates, low median family incomes, and home values. And there's a lot more specificity to that, that folks can find. And there's ways to see exactly which jurisdictions in which this activity can take place. Again, it can be done for properties that are newly built or substantially rehabilitated for sale. And so in that context, the eligible purchasers uh, must have incomes at or below 140% of the state area median income. And then the other use can be rehabilitation of homes for existing owner occupants. And in that circumstance, uh, the eligible homeowners must have incomes at or below the state area median income. And there's a lot more we can say, but as Mike noted, there's an excellent podcast with Dirk explaining all these specifics. Well, thank you for that. As a you know former allocator <laughs> and now housing policy consultant, Novogratic, what excites you the most or what are some of the things that excite you? It's probably more than one thing. Well, it's really an excellent combination because it's almost a universal reality across our country. You can just say in any setting, no one's building starter homes. They're just not available. And you will get widespread head nodding and agreement. It's just an understood circumstance. And so when that happens, I characterize that as a, a market failure. There is a demand for folks early in their adult lives to buy houses and they're just not for sale in many markets. When you've got a, what I characterize as a market failure, there's a need for government to step in and, and do something. And the approach that's happening here is modeled after the low-income housing tax credit. I've worked with maybe a dozen, depending on how you define it, different housing programs. And the way that the low-income housing tax credit works by incorporating the tax code makes it a truly uniquely successful program. Bringing those two together makes this a, a really exciting prospect. Plus, it's always it, it just inherently interesting whenever something's brand new and getting started because there's so much to decide and figure out. And I know for myself, I'm excited at the potential for this tool to help revitalize distressed communities. We have rental housing being built in distressed communities can't help revitalize those communities. We have the new market tax credit for commercial, for non-residential uses in distressed areas in low-income communities. The new market tax credit can be used for a bit for for sale housing, but it, it is a challenging structure, but it, it does get used uh, for that purpose. But this would be a targeted incentive for, as you note, for sale home ownership in distressed areas, as well as renovation costs for existing homeowners. So the focus of the podcast is on state agencies and their call allocation plans. Before getting into some of the specifics, since you work with so many housing agencies, what are they saying? about the neighborhood homes tax credit. How excited are they? I reached out to several in the last few days to get some more specific feedback and input on that. And I heard from a friend of mine in the agency in Minnesota that right now their focus has been on all of these extensive federal resources that have come their way to administer. And so their bandwidth to pay attention to a program that is as yet not enacted is limited. That has been the most common perspective among agencies. And I, I realize that may not be what 
some folks want to hear, but that's just the reality. And I can't blame them. There's hardly been another time in history when there's been as much put on agencies. And gladly so. They want the resources, they want the responsibility, but it all takes time. And the only comparable time I would think would be back in you know, 2009, and it's for similar reasons. But several of them have gotten started. In particular, a couple, and I don't know if they want to be identified just yet, that have picked out who's going to manage the program on staff. And that's an important step for them to know who that is. And there's probably some others that have done that as well. I just have only heard from those two. I would like, though, to call out Vermont. They have clearly done some very advanced, sophisticated thinking about this program and how it will and won't work in their state. And so there looks to me to be a, a, a future leader in this program and how it uh, gets carried out. Right. So that's a good overview. Now let's get a little bit more specific and talk about qualified allocation plans. Now, like the concept of qualified allocation plans or QAPs. Some people call them QAPs, but I, they're always QAPs to me. I see you're shaking your head. So QAP, the concept is familiar to those who work with the loan domestic cash credit. Uh, state allocated agencies are required by statute uh, to adopt qualified allocation plans to set forth their allocation priorities and establish application scoring rubrics and the like. Now, some get done directly through the QAP, others get have a QAP followed by regulations and other tools that implement uh, the qualified allocation plan. So maybe you could discuss for our listeners the significant concept of QAPs as they apply to the neighborhood homes tax. It's the most significant document that anyone can point to with this uh, program, at least early on, uh, because as Section 42 says about the low-income housing tax credit, this uh, introduced legislation has exactly the same phrasing where it says the amount of tax credit will be zero. That's the word it uses, zero, unless allocated pursuant to uh, QAP. So the QAP has to be there. There's one of those in every state for the low-income housing tax credit. And, and you're absolutely right. That document isn't always the one that is the operative one. There's some policies in some states, at reg manuals, regulations, et cetera. But they all have a QAP, and, and every state will have one for the neighborhood homes credit because they have to by law. But... Even if that wasn't part of the, the the federal code, it would absolutely make sense to do because agencies need a document which tells the world and themselves how they're going to administer this uh, this program. Uh, developer or investor, should I just wait until the state adopts their QAP and then see how it applies? You should wait on certain aspects like buying land, for example, unless you're willing to roll the dice that the land you buy is not going to fit with the QAP. But that's about the only thing on which you should wait as a non-agency participant. There's no reason to wait on two other activities. Number one, learning how this program works and the credit calculation, et cetera. All those things are from a federal perspective, there's tremendous amount to get your head around for this program. And um, just because it's new, not because it's particularly complicated. If anything, it's less complicated than some other similar type activities. Because it's new, there's things that you've got to learn and maybe unlearn relative to your experiences with those other programs. There's that. And also, though, it's not too soon to think about what 
you want your state to do with this resource. Maybe right at this very minute, it's a little premature to submit that kind of input, but the minute this is enacted, maybe even as it's clear that it's going to be enacted, it's absolutely appropriate to reach out to your agency to say, here's what we see as a logical priority. And agencies always want that kind of feedback, but they're especially going to want it with this new program, because when they hear that, what, what they're going to hear is, okay, if we put this concept in our document, then at least one person this who is commenting is going to at least try to make that happen because they told us that we will. And that's going to be a real challenge for agencies is how do you write the rules to then have folks, developers and the funding sources then make that happen. You have the benefit here of having states having issued qualification plans for law and gas credits and having learned a lot about implementing systems uh, like this and incentives like this uh, credit. And I would just note for those that aren't as familiar with the law of the cash credit back in the day, that when the law of the cash credit was first created, you actually had to get the allocation and place the building in service all in the same year. And that was totally a design flaw. And it took a statutory correction a couple of years later to where you could actually get the allocation and then go build the project <laughs> versus get the allocation and place the project all in the same year. That's just a point that if, if you're not careful with the design of the statute, you can end up needing amendments later. Or if you're not careful with the QAP, the requirements of the QAP, you could find that you've developed some requirements that aren't very feasible for most transactions. But sticking with the Logos Attached Credit QAPs for a moment, what frameworks or principles do you think are in Locally cash credit fault allocation plans that would be applicable or could be built off of for the neighborhood homes tax credit. This may be into the weeds, but the organizational structure of those documents, I think will be very helpful to use for these new documents to be created. The concept, it, it, as I break it out, there's uh, set asides, which may or may not happen for this new program, but that's creating distinct competitions, whether it's new construction rehab, which makes a lot of sense in the low-income housing context, probably would in this context as well. You could have geographic set-asides. So again, it's creating distinct competitions for the resource, which again, that may or may not make sense in the beginning year. It makes more or less sense also depending on the size of the state. Larger states, you can have more of those and have legit consequential competitions. And then the other aspect are going to be the threshold requirements. And those are probably in these early years going to be some of the most important to figure out what are the things that this proposal to use this resource has to demonstrate in order to receive an award and then a subsequent allocation. And there's some things in the law that talk about what has to be there, the agency has to consider, but there's going to be a lot of things that, that isn't in the law for the agency to figure out. I'm certain that very quickly, this will become like these other programs where demand vastly exceeds supply. There will need to be a selection criteria that decides the winners and the losers. And um, that's going to be absolutely necessary to figure out. And then last but not least, of course, will be the underwriting, and that's going to be the hardest to figure out in these early years. And some of that may have to get left for later to be figured that, out. Talk about that underwriting for a second, or maybe not so much the underwriting as much as the focus and structure that the applicant takes with respect to the application. 
because that neighborhood homes tax credit, it is modeled after the local domestic tax credit, but there are important differences between the two, as we've discussed before. For our listeners, I would just note that local domestic tax credits are gap financing for a given real estate development. And when a sponsor applies from local domestic tax allocation, the project itself is under the sources and uses of that real estate is uh, underwritten by the state. In most cases, it's on a single site. There are six scattered sites, but nonetheless, there's the sources and uses that the state underwrites. And the state agency only allocates the tax credits needed to make that development financially feasible. Now, in contrast, here with the Airhost Action, we have a credit for the development renovation of for sale housing. As you mentioned, it's also in part for renovation of existing homes. So let's talk about the portion that's used for sale housing. The Edward Homes tax credit is designed to cover the difference between the cost of a home and its ultimate selling price. So when you think about that, how that is that difference, which means if you're selling each home on the market, you don't know what its selling price is. You don't know how much credit you need. <laughs> what are some of the implications of this difference in your mind? Is there some of the issues to consider <laughs> in administering neighborhood homes tax? You've laid it out very well that it just, it's a fundamentally different, distinct business model. The developer doing the work is not going to have it, the same kind of understanding of the outcomes that is possible with the low income credit. And that may sound crazy to some folks who are hearing this because of what's happened in the last few years with uh, changes from 2016 to 17 and the, the sources, the equity changes. And then in the last couple of years with the prices, things like lumber going up and down, there's been tremendous uncertainty in the low income market, but for the neighborhood homes credit, it really is just as you described, you don't know what, what the Delta is going to be for each of these homes, uh, let alone what they're going to be across the board. Something that we had thought of earlier that it could operate similar concept to a line of credit and where the resource is available and it gets pulled down with each transaction. And, and then something that we discussed in our uh, working group that we'll talk about here in a little while is the way the new markets credit operates, where it's the recipient of that can pull it down as they go forward with development activity. And so that potentially going to have to be at least something of a difference between the way this program works and the low income uh, credit. I like to think of it as it could be project-based where you go in with a certain number of homes, in which case you end up uh, potentially having to give credits back to this where the state has to basically say, here's the amount of credits you have. And if you sell them at a higher price, then you won't use as many of the credits and you'll give them back to us. We'll reallocate them to somebody else, uh, some fashion of returning credits. And that way I look at it as the project based. The other I think about is more of a business strategy based where you give the credits subject to a business strategy and that business strategy ultimately use all those credits. You just don't know how many homes would get built, what the sales prices would be uh, and the rest. And I would say the business strategy approach is more like new market tax credits and the project uh, approach is more like low domestic cash credits as they're used today. So let's talk about the discretion states have been drafting their neighborhood homes tax credit QAPs. They have a bit of discretion. There are areas where they don't. Maybe you want to share some thoughts. It, it really seems like it's a 
pretty tremendous amount, even more than with the low income credit, because under section 42, agencies have to give certain kinds of preferences. Now, even those preferences are fairly broadly defined, but those have to be in the document. And then in addition to those, there's the 10 uh, selection criteria, which aren't themselves preferences, but are aspects that agencies have to consider. With the neighborhood homes credit, there is no mandated incentive, no mandated preference that has to be there. And it's really just a few uh, selection criteria that they have to incorporate in their QAP. And I have it more spelled out in uh, the blog post on this uh, same topic that was out a few days ago. But just to summarize, it's the need uh, in the area, the capacity developer, the likelihood to create long-term homeownership, and the contribution to neighborhood uh, stabilization um, and revitalization. I'm summarizing, but those are the basic concepts that have to be in the QAP, but there's no limitation that those are the only concepts. The agency could have additional ones. And, and so that, and again, that's of the various aspects which get informed and shaped by public input comments from outside parties. The selection criteria probably are the most. That's a lot of the threshold requirements, a lot of the underwriting considerations. Those are going to be things that agencies figure out. They still are going to need comments on those and that those are going to matter, but they're going to matter a lot, even more so for these uh, selection criteria, who comes out on top. Yeah, that's, uh, those are great points. And it, your point about the state agencies needing feedback early is really important. So our listeners really should be reaching out to the states, sharing their feedback once the likelihood of the credit being enacted is very high. Yeah. And your point about the locally attached credits having selection criteria and priorities uh, in the statute and the neighborhood homes not being quite as extensive as what's in the locally attached credits, a good point as well, giving them a little bit more latitude. But I do suspect that over time, <laughs> once enacted, I wouldn't be surprised if there are more selection criteria that Congress adds over time and maybe adds in some priorities, because that's something that is always being reconsidered with Northern Housing Tax Credits. This has been a useful discussion about neighborhood homes tax credit and expectations as to how states could administer the incentive. Now I want to uh, get into more the action-oriented part of the podcast where we discuss next steps and action items. Assuming enactment, how long do you think it would take before Alec and the agencies can start accepting applications and what statutory timelines or deadlines might be placed? We're based this off of the Ways and Means Committee approved bill, because all of this is obviously subject to being enacted and there could be changes to the draft statute, which would obviously alter what you're hearing here today. Absolutely. So I would say there's two high level considerations, which will have the biggest impact on how quickly the program gets uh, set up and running. The first is what's the effective year? What's the first year the credit is available? If it's in 2022, then agencies will do a lot of dropping. I wouldn't I won't say everything, but they'll drop a lot to make certain this happens so as to be able to have that resource go out in 2022. And um, if it's 2023, there will still get going. Any organization has to think about the triage. And, and so having it start in 2023 will give agencies some more time to have this occur, not in as rushed and hurried a, a fashion. But obviously we don't know what the first year 
would be of this. Then the other consideration is the extent to which the agency has to get approval, blessing, authorization from some other component within state government. And uh, that's totally variable. In some states, there's none of that. In others, uh, there's a tremendous amount. But the more they have to get approval from a legislature or a governor, the, the, the longer uh, this will take uh, to move forward. And those are the two considerations. But I would say that it, at a minimum, it's going to take several months from enactment to get these up and going. Because the other consideration, even though unlike with the long-income tax credit, there's no public hearing requirement, there is a requirement to get public comment. And that's pretty widely understood to be at least a month. And that process will take, again, at least a month, maybe two. That could be modified by controlled and affected by other state administrative procedure expectations. Right. But yes, I would say from enactment to getting started, probably the quickest it could happen, I would say would be six months. And that would be with everything hitting just right. So what steps can agencies take now? The the ones that have identified who is on point to, to do this work have really taken a good step because that will, that individual will have it in at least the back of their head and they'll be doing some work on getting their um, mind around will operate as they fill in another task. So that's an important step, but it's a difficult one because this expertise doesn't really exist right now in any one person, which is totally understandable because it brings in these different uh, functions. We've talked a lot about the long-term housing tax credit, but in that work, you don't encounter a lot of things that are very important in the home ownership context because it's not a home ownership program. And so those are two pretty distinct sets of understandings and expertise. So that person is going to need to start gaining that other knowledge base and expertise. And of course, everyone that could be involved in this, not just that one person, because it's going to take more than just one person is going to need to just understand as much as they can. And one of the best ways to do that is to join our working group. We've already had uh, a few meetings and they've been really informational and educational and they're just going to keep getting better. And so hopefully folks will sign up for that and then get to where they learn and just to contact uh, us in general and myself, others with, with the firm who have um, some expertise in how this is going to work. So that's great advice for allocating agencies. How about for developers and investors? Yes, I would say the, the main thing they could look to, the two main things they can do now are to get their head around how this program might work for them. And it's going to be really tempting for some of them to say, this is too distinct from our work. This is not what we do, but I think that'd be a mistake to write it off up front initially. Now it's possible that will be the outcome for a particular developer or investor, but I think it's too soon for anyone in any of those roles, uh, lenders also to say they don't want to have any part in this because it's just not well understood enough out in the, out in the world. And it's entirely possible that if, you know, someone who writes it off could have been a role leader, could have been, had a lot of activity and involvement and work in this industry. And so you re they really need to try to understand how it could work for them. And, and for developers in particular, the other thing you can start doing is looking at the maps that are available because they're out there and start seeing which jurisdictions and thinking about where they could potentially do deals. No, I agree with you. It seems like every developer investor should at least give it a look 
and look at the dynamics from a developer's perspective. It's an additional tool uh, to develop distressed communities for investors. It's uh, an additional way uh, to invest, get a return, and also do good at the same time. And for investors, it'll have unique investment characteristics that they might find attractive. So it does seem like they, at a minimum, should get an understanding of the credit and decide if it's something that fits for them. And if they decide it does fit for them, they can get certain first mover advantages and the rest. Uh, it's also something out there, if they end up being interested in, they do want to be communicating with the various state agencies that would be allocating uh, and developing QAPs so that the state QAP, those that are drafted with QAPs have the feedback needed to ensure that they're coming up with a allocation plan that does generate financially feasible public-private partnerships. And of course, they should also think about joining the, the Neighborhood Homes Task Force Working Group uh, that we have, along with just contacting someone in Democratic who can even uh, sit down and uh, explain to you a little bit more of the details for it. We also, as I mentioned, had the earlier podcast. We have various blog posts from Mark and others. So there's lots of information on our website uh, to learn more. And we are in the process of working on a webinar. The webinar will be coming in the next uh, few months uh, on the topic as well. Uh, once it's uh, enactment, it is more sure. Thank you, Mark, for sharing your insights on the show today. If you could share your email with our listeners so they know how to contact you. And then also, if you have any party comments. Certainly. Email is my first and last name, Mark, M-A-R-K dot S-H-E-L-B-U-R-N-E at N-C hyphen L-L-P dot com. And my only parting um, comments are to just reiterate and echo that the time is now to start learning how this uh, program will and won't operate because you'll want to be the one that understands that uh, so you can be ahead of the game. And also, I will share your email in today's show notes. And for our listeners, you can find the show notes at www.novaco.com slash podcast. So thank you, Mark. And please do stick around for our off mic segment in a few moments when I'm going to ask you some off topic, off tax credit topic questions. So you can share your wisdom in areas other than tax credits with our listeners. To our listeners, be sure to tune into next week's podcast. My guest will be my partner, Tony Gropone. He's one of the lead partners in Novogratz's Renewable Energy Tax Credit Practice. Tony and I will discuss some emerging issues around renewable energy and how these trends or these issues can inform developer strategies. You can make sure you're notified of that episode and each week's episode by following or subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Go to www.novoco.com slash podcast to subscribe to and stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to Tax Credit Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, and Radio Public. Now, I'm pleased to reach our op mic section, where our guests can share some non-tax credit advice with our listeners. So Mark, let me start with uh, one of my favorite questions, and that is, what is your personal favorite or most productive time management tip? It's more about productivity itself than time management, but I have learned that a great way to get your head around a problem or to try to understand a, a situation is to really think about it and focus on it for you know, some period of time and then 
go exercise, go for, for me, it's a, a bike ride. Others, it could be a run outside in nature to the extent that you can. And there's really something about that, that the way the the brain chemistry works for, at least for some people, that you'll have an insight that it'll be a, a flash that will come to you um, by virtue of doing it in that order, in that pattern that's been really uh, successful for me. And uh, maybe it wouldn't be for others, but but I've had some of my best thoughts and um, insights taking that approach. Now, that's great advice. I try to do the same. It's, it's amazing the insights you can have while you're out getting some physical exercise. So many people are working remotely now or flexible work arrangements. We're indefinitely on a remote sort of flexible work environment in Novogratic. What's your favorite piece of advice for achieving a good work-life balance uh, given these new, more flexible work arrangements? Yes. Thanks to your approach to the, the firm, I've been able to work remotely since 2015. It's been great. I've learned a, a lot of lessons, but a couple that stand out are to have distinct areas of wherever you are located for the distinct activities. So there's a, a room where you work and there's a room where you sit and not work. And um, there's something again about the way, at least for me, my, my brain works that makes it so that you can have a better psyche by having those two different uh, locations in, again, wherever you are. And the other is there just a, a point of the day where you just have to put your phone down and not look at it anymore. And maybe it's late in the day and that's okay, but we're, it, maybe it's just an hour or so before you go to bed, but you just uh, switch off so you can go ahead and, and wind down and, and end your day. I definitely agree with, with those comments and the latter part about the getting prepared for sleep having a good routine there so you can separate yourself there. And the, the physical space is uh, really important. And some of us have the luxury of being able to have physically distinct spaces uh, between the two. And for others, it's less a physically distinct space versus adjusting the environment and having it set up in a way that your work approach versus your non-work approach. So you do get those visual, physical cues that, that it's your uh, work time. So that the third and last area where I'll get some advice from you is another one of my favorites. And that's what word of advice you would give to the 20 year old version of yourself. So I'll, so I've just given it away. You are over 20. <laughs> so this would be a few years ago. We won't discuss how many years ago it would be, but it is a reasonable period of time. <laughs> not, as, not as reasonable period as it would be for me. Joke that I'm now well into the extended use period of my career. That's for sure. <laughs> but for me personally, I'd always wished that I had um, taken time. Bet I took a year between undergraduate and my, my graduate degrees, um, but I wish I'd done something a little more serious with myself during that year, like going to Wall Street, that kind of thing. It was good to have taken time, so I'm glad I at least did that. But again, for just me personally, that I wish I had done um, something a little more uh, financially oriented where I learned a little bit more about some of the things I had to learn when I finished graduate school. I, I really could have learned them before I went into it. I would have been better off had I done that. Thank you again, Mark, for joining us uh, on the podcast. That's it for now. Michael Novogratik, thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratic and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. 
or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratic and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.